Before I officiate a wedding, I require couples to meet with me three or four times to talk about the ins and outs of marriage. I'm, 15 years of marriage does not give me expertise, but I, my job is to uncover potential obstacles, potential things that might make the marriage difficult in times of trouble. For couples I don't know all that well, I also give them a multiple-choice marriage inventory that poses a range of questions covering topics like communication, family planning, and finances. One of my favorite questions from the inventory that always spurs really good conversation is this one. Do you think that conflict in a marriage is a good thing? Invariably, one person who grew up in a peaceful home says, no, conflict is bad, while the other who grew up in a more boisterous environment says, no, conflict is good, which, of course, gives us the chance to talk about the different kinds of conflict in a relationship and to consider when a conflict can, in fact, be a good thing. I had a friend recently whose marriage ended. When Amy and I asked her why things came to an abrupt end, her answer surprised me. They didn't break up because they fought too much. They broke up because they didn't fight enough. This is what she said. We got along great. We really like each other a lot. But in the end, we didn't care enough about each other to disagree. We didn't care enough to fight. Now, while it's true that certain kinds of conflict are toxic to relationships and to life in general, in that they usually lead to some kind of violence, which is never justified, when Jesus talks today about conflict in this passage, when he talks to the crowds and the disciples about the division that he brings, he's not talking about violence towards other people. He's talking about divisions among people. He's talking about two people or two groups who find themselves divided about something, about an issue, about a problem, because they see the issue and the problem from different points of view. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, he asks the disciples, and before they can answer, no, he says, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and the worst of all, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I mean, nothing is sacred. Follow me, he seems to be teaching us, and I will teach you all about conflict. Yay! Now, these, odds, these words probably feel odd to those of us living in a nation where indifference towards the Christian faith is a more common emotion than hostility towards it. But for first century followers of Jesus, these words about division, about separation, about houses being divided would have rung true because there was a real cost to choosing to follow him. If you were Jewish, Jesus following him meant accepting that an itinerant rabbi who hung out with sinners, preached a message of love and forgiveness, and confronted temple leadership, was the actual Messiah you've been waiting for. 
even if he looked nothing like the warrior king David that everyone expected to come. And if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, following him meant accepting that he was the one to save you. Even he looked nothing like what the culture held out to be powerful or important. In first century Palestine, whether you were Jew or Greek, following Jesus meant going against the status quo, going against what was accepted, expected and known, going against what your family wanted you to believe and do. And while many things have changed in 2,000 years, people's resistance to change is not one of them. It took a six-month study by a five-person task force that formed after a mass shooting by a white supremacist killed nine people in a historically black church in South Carolina. It took six months, five people in a room, but the Washington National Cathedral decided finally to remove two tiny images of Confederate battle flags that had been part of their stained glass windows for nearly 60 years. The windows were installed in 1953 to pay tribute to General Stonewall Jackson and General Robert E. Lee of the Confederate Army. So you can understand, given the recent tensions and violence, the reasons for concern. Now, I wasn't there at those task force meetings, and I don't know anyone who was, but I have been to many five-person task force meetings in my 15 years of ministry. So here's how it went down. After a brief exchange of prayers and pleasantries in the very first meeting, that five-person task force, along with some pastoral leadership likely, engaged in a long, tiring, difficult, exhausting process of pushing and pulling, of arguing and listening to two opposing points of view. One group was all for keeping the windows as they are and the Confederate flags that are in them as a reminder of our church's legacy and as a way to honor its past, as checkered as it may be. That was one argument. The other side, one of the windows entirely removed, not just the flags, but the whole bay of windows as a sign that injustice of any kind should not be tolerated or treated with reverence, no matter the cost. They were likely divided two against three and three against two. But the pastor wisely sitting in the corner, silent. But after six months, after a period of conflict that likely wasn't easy and strained relationships, they reached a third way, a creative compromise. Instead of tearing out the windows or keeping it as they were, they decided to take out the flags from the image, but to leave the windows to, quote, serve as a catalyst for the difficult and uncomfortable conversations about race that we need to have on the road to racial justice. And then, in the most faithful thing I think they could have done, they promised over the next two years to keep talking about the windows and to do an assessment of all the art and iconography, that, iconography, whatever, you know what I meant. Discuss all the things in the church that look pretty and decide together whether or not they should stay or leave. They resolved one conflict and then committed to having countless and countless more. That is so church. (laughs) 
When you commit to following Jesus with other people, more than absorbing some set of beliefs, you commit to taking part in the creation of something new. When you choose to follow Jesus with other people, you enter into a partnership with God and with them to, to build a new heaven and a new earth. Which is exactly why Jesus reminds us that he did not come to bring peace or stability. He came to bring conflict and division. Because that's the only way to bring about real lasting change that benefits each and every one. You may have missed it. It got buried with all the stuff that followed after, all that talk about being divided against your parents. But Jesus opens today's passage speaking about a fire that he wishes were already kindled. We know that fire can be destructive, but it can also play an important role in creating healthy ecosystems as it clears out old growth and enriches the soil. Even storms like the one we experienced this past week, storms that knocked down, knocked out, pulled out of the ground beloved century oaks and maples, even storms as destructive as that one, still open up new possibilities as tiny saplings who've been covered with canopies begin to reach for the first time for the sun. Fires burn and storms rage, but in the end, God prevails. Do not think, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, he says, I tell you, but rather division. As hard as a teaching as this might be for those who avoid conflict at all costs or think that conflict has no place in church, this is a teaching given to us in love. Because when we resist the conflict, when we resist or ignore the division, we only make things worse. Every August is wildfire season out west. I used to live out west. Everybody's on edge. Campfire signs are up everywhere, don't light a fire. But the problem out west isn't the existence of wildfires. They've been burning for centuries. The problem out west is the intensity of the fires when they burn. Years of fire suppression policy have created the perfect conditions in some places for fires that burn too hot and too long. You've seen the images these fires leave behind, completely altered landscapes, whole towns reduced to ash, once lush mountains stripped bare of trees, clear-running trout streams black and vicious with charcoal and ash. These are not the kind of fires that are helpful, even necessary for forest ecosystems, but they are the kind of fires that burn when we put out the smaller fires too quickly. I wonder if this is in part what's happening right now in our nation with all the divisive political rhetoric and all the intensity around conversations about race. What, what, what has been suppressed for years is finally burning bright. What has been happening on our city streets for decades is now seeing the light of day through the power of social media And while the fire that burns is hot and painful, as people of faith, as those who follow the one who offers life-changing, life-altering, world-transforming grace, we are called to run towards the fire 
not away from it. We are called to stand and stay in the storm, not to rush inside. Trusting that in the storm, in the fire, in the conflict, God is doing something new. I have a colleague in ministry who believes that the scope of change that we are experiencing as a church and as a nation is so deep, so wide, so broad, that it must be in response to something God is doing. Because only an act of God has the bandwidth, he argues, to cause such conflict, such division. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that God is causing the conflict or the division. That's not how God works. But as we commit to moving toward being a more perfect union, a more inclusive church, a more just society, there will be resistance to the way things are. To think otherwise would be naive. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have come to bring peace division. Living like Jesus, living with Jesus, living with people who love Jesus, people who are different than us, will lead to conflict and divisions. But by God's grace, these divisions, these conflicts, they don't have the last word. God always has the last word, and God is at work making all things new. By God's grace, the cost of transformation, the cost of change, is division. But from these divisions can come the new heaven and new earth God has promised, because from those divisions where two sides make their case and listen to one another, something new, a third way, a creative solution is formed where everyone has a place at the table and every voice has room to be heard and every conflict is embraced as the path to something better and new. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? Jesus asked his weary disciples. No, I tell you, but rather division. Thanks be to God. Amen.